This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pints and Perspective. I'm still getting to enjoy the day, hanging out with my friend and mentor, Ben Blackwell. So grateful that he's taken a day out of his writing sabbatical to spend with us. Yeah, it's good. I was looking for an excuse not to <laughs> do hard work today. Yeah, so, so tell our listeners uh, just a brief bit about your new book. Yeah, that's uh, so the one that I'm working on right now is called Participating in the Righteousness of God. And so I am trying to overthrow the Reformation 500 years of now. <laughs> um, uh, basically, I'm arguing that uh, the when Paul talks about justification by faith, that the, his primary referent there is not so much forgiveness, although that's a part of it, but that the gift of life is inherent to what he's arguing about. So his primary quote to ground his justification argument is that of Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous by faith will live. Mm. Now, we usually put it in a little bit different order. That's the Greek and the Hebrew orders, the righteous by faith will live. We often quote it according to the righteous will live by faith. And right. so, um, yeah, it doesn't destroy the meaning there, but I think his whole thing is the righteous by faith. Those who are justified will live. That's the right. hope and promise there. And so, um, we see this throughout, uh, his, uh, argument in Romans and Galatians, uh, first and second Corinthians. So for instance, uh, in second Corinthians three, he talks about the ministry of righteousness as opposed to the ministry of condemnation. So this whole idea of justification, there is the new covenant hope that the spirit gives life instead of the law that brings death. And so again, life and justification go together by the spirit or in Romans, we have the whole idea. There is no condemnation, right? And yeah. for those who are in Christ, well, what does no condemnation mean? Well, that means you're justified, right? No condemnation is the opposite of uh, justification. But why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yeah. Or Romans 8, 10, right? The, even though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life on account of righteousness. So it's, uh, my argument is that throughout um, Paul's letters, uh, when he speaks about justification, more often than any other item, he associates justification with life. And so this, um, in a way, does split the difference between kind of some traditional Protestant and uh, traditional Catholic positions. So The kind of dichotomy of justification, sanctification, glorification. Yeah, so they, uh, in a traditional kind of Protestant mode, we really separate what God says, the declaration of forgiveness and justification, as an objective reality from the subjective experience of life and transformation. Typically we call that sanctification, even though Paul doesn't use the terminology in that same way so neatly. But here the, the whole idea is, is in the Catholic tradition, that sanctifying righteousness that you're, you're acting upon, um, feeds into your final justification yeah. the final judgment. Um, my argument is, is that this life that God gives us in Christ, uh, so Galatians 2, you know, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, is in the heart of his justification argument, right? It's yeah. a new life. But the whole idea is it's not a, a doing good things 
that would shape our final judgment. It's actually that that final judgment has been brought forward to the present. And that new life is here and now in God's present justifying act. And so it's still uh, in the same way that no one raises themselves from the dead when God gives life, right? It's something that God does to us and for us and in us, but, and because of Christ who lives in us because of the spirit who gives us life, um, it's still focused upon God's divine agency, his divine act in us. Uh, but it is a very subjective, a very, in the sense of like, it happens to me. It's not just something God says about me. It's not just a status that he declares about me. Yeah. And I, I kind of knew all that, but I bring that up because I do think that's an important piece while people are not formulating, like they're not verbalizing it in the way that Ben is some of that really is a driving force about how people through modernity and post-modernity have taken kingdom of God language and enacted it in mm. the world. Uh, and so for this episode, we really want to talk about that. What, what is the realization of the kingdom of God in a modern postmodern, contemporary context? Yeah. Uh, and there are three kind of, well, there's more than them, just three, but three different kind of strands of thought in this way. And one is through the work of Scott McKnight, who is a self-proclaimed Anabaptist, um, in that the kingdom of God is realized in and through the local church. There's another guy who was a 20th, 20th century pastor um, in Hell's Kitchen, New York, during the, the Industrial Revolution, who took the kingdom of God idea and formulated it into something called the social gospel. His name's Walter Rauschenbusch. We're going to talk about him. And then most recently, uh, a guy by the name of Jürgen Moltmann has taken the kingdom of God and put it in reference to God's interaction with humanity. Mm. And so we want to talk very theologically about these three different ideas and we can maybe throw in one fourth one is just kind of the idea that the kingdom is somehow a spiritual reality. Um, it's something inside you, but doesn't really drive communal. So these other three are very social kind of ways of putting that. Yeah. Um, and I think they're, they're the ones the most articulate about ways the kingdom plays out in life. Um, the, I think the default position of many kind of just average Christians is this fourth option that is often unarticulated, uh, but just that the kingdom, if it has any reality is really in the future, but if it has any present reality, it's just you living in obedience to God or something mm. like that in a, yeah, in an individualistic, it doesn't, it's not necessitated on the church or society in that sense. Yeah, I'm trying to think about who a prototype person would be for that, um, that kind of interpretation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not as, um, like I say, it's often unarticulated. I mean, you have New Testament scholars historically, uh, so like Rudolf Boltmann would do this, um, C.H. Dodd yeah. were some of the older uh, New Testament scholars that make it an interior spiritual reality. Uh, and dispensationalism yeah. um you find this because the whole idea is that Jesus presented the kingdom to the people of Israel and they rejected it. And so you kind of go, uh, 
uh, and to this kind of parenthetical church age while you're waiting for Christ to return and establish his kingdom physically on earth. And so uh, that whole millennial kingdom is very uh, essential to this dispensational theology because the kingdom's not present now. We're waiting on Christ to come back and establish it in the future. And if there is some sense of the kingdom, then it it's, it's definitely not social. It definitely, it, it's about your personal relationship with Jesus in, yeah. in that sense. And so, um, you know, I think this is the default position of the average person, even if they don't articulate it, because as we've talked about, I was like this, I, the kingdom might be a term I'd use, but it was, had no organizing structure to my theology. It definitely was not like the climax of God's covenantal work and yeah. history in which Jesus as the King is bringing in the kingdom as a present reality that brings us transformation. And so, um, whether Scott McKnight or Rauschenbusch or Moltmann, these are, are articulations that are very intentional about drawing the kingdom in and structuring a system around the kingdom. Yeah. And I'm not sure that for me, I'm not sure that any of them fully have it, um, embodied to perfection in that way. However, I commend all of them for making the kingdom of God a central kind of theme and focal point in their own theologies. Yeah. Um, and so let's go ahead. I think, you know, I think if you've listened to all of these episodes in the series, you know that we both believe that the kingdom of God is a foundational and fundamental piece of constructing your own theology. Uh, and, and what does this actually mean? It is truly the message of Jesus. But the way that's been interpreted is quite different uh, for a lot of different people. And I think if you're not going to go this kind of... Um, spiritual individual future coming dispensational kind of approach to the kingdom of God. Um, maybe your next starting place would be that the kingdom of God is a, is a reality that's embodied in the local church, which would be kind of a, a Scott McKnight Anabaptist approach to the kingdom of God. Yeah. And I think on the whole, this is where I would probably start, it does seem to me, you know, that's where Jesus is leading to. At least you have the whole idea of Peter giving, you know, here are the keys to the kingdom, right? Um, of, you know, upon this rock. And so, in fact, in Matthew, it's one of the only few times that the word church or ecclesia is even used in the Gospels is when Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. And oh, yeah, that's um, right. You know, and so in that sense, it's, I think, a good place to start. And, and in this sense, too, it's like, I think for me, the uh, we're, we're back to this Anabaptist versus the Abraham Kuyper position, um, is where is God's rule and reign played out? And so in a more Kuyperian position that Rauschenbusch would hold to, I think, in the sense that God, we should see God's act and the church and the believers should be very active in creating the social conditions through political, um, economic and other systems like that to embody the realities of the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think there, 
like you said, I think there's something important about that. If, if we don't have any place for that, I think you're a bit Gnostic, right? That you're going to yeah. bracket out some aspects of creation is separated from the realities of the gospel. And I think actually a good Christology sets Christ back at creation. And so sometimes you, you get this view, um, uh, in really strong uh, Bardian, you know, Karl Barth inspired positions that uh, the incarnation is the center of God's revelation in the world. Right. Like a, a Christocentric kind of. Yeah. And so it, it, it extends something that you find in Luther, I think, um, in the first place. But it's this whole idea. Uh, you'll find that some Pauline scholars will say the uh, statements like this, there's no salvation history before the cross in that sense that the uh, saving work of Christ is so unique and different from what has come before that we, we uh, it minimizes everything uh, that goes before. And I think this is a, it's correct to capture the climax of God's work in history that way, but it, it negates actually the Christology that exists in creation before that. It's right. not that creation is somehow natural space devoid of God. And then Jesus, God just shows up for the first time here. God created the world. And even if sins in it, God is as still at the inherent center of principle of reality in history. And of course has been working through the Jewish people with the prov- uh, covenants and things like that. And so in that sense, Christ is unique. He brings something that we never expected before, for sure. Uh, but it's no rejection of what he's done in the past either. And so in that sense, you have these models then that um, that have such a unique place for the church and creation that I think if you have no place for creation or creational realities, then I think you've minimized God's initial work there. And so, but it's the whole question of, um, general revelation and special revelation. How do those work together? How does common grace work together with special or saving grace? What's the, uh, special grace. What's the right word? Common grace and saving grace. I can't Sacramental remember. grace. Um, but you know, it's the it's that same kind of question we have here about the kingdom as a reality in the church in a special way that has echoes or ripple effects also out in creation as well. Yeah, and I think that's true. So for me personally, I end I probably end up more in the Walter Rauschenbusch and Jurgen Moltmann camp. Um now that may be you're doing because I remember reading Moltmann's Trinity in the Kingdom in one of your undergraduate classes on Trinitarianism. <laughs> so maybe in some of my most formative moments, you introduced me to that. Um, but for me, uh, I do think Scott McKnight. So Scott McKnight, uh, I want to give credit to him because I do think he does good work on this. Um, he wrote, wrote a book called Kingdom Conspiracy. And it is the foundational premise that the kingdom of God is embodied in the local church. And I do think that is true. Uh, It is the work of the church, the people of God, to do these things, right? It is the call of God in the Old Testament for the people of God to care for the quartet of the vulnerable, 
right? It is the call of God upon the people of God to care for the needy and the poor and the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and the immigrant. And so I do think, uh, Dr. Scott McKnight is right when he talks about that being embodied in the local church. But I do think we specifically as Americans have an element of the kingdom of God that as we've talked about that the the kingdom of God has come when the spirit of God is upon you. We now walk with the spirit of God and we have our hand. We have a voice in politics and societal structures that can better embody um, the presence and the goal and better reflect the kingdom of God. So Walter Rauschenbusch, for for context here, he lived in Hell's Kitchen, New York, uh, during the Industrial Revolution, in which he looked around and saw capitalism and industrialization leading to mass poverty and the housing crisis and very unjust things that were happening in hell's kitchen. He said, this is not the kingdom of God. And so he ended up taking it to a very political, uh, scheme and model in which he became a full blown socialist. But his idea is that the kingdom of God is not limited to the individual the realization of the kingdom of God is not limited to the individual, but society itself needed to experience the restoration of the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think the important thing here is to move beyond kind of the either or sense is, is it, is sin inherently an individual act or is sin and corruption, uh, instantiated in or inherent to social, realities and of course the answer is yes right it's not the either or one or the other and and i think that's the tension that we face here is sometimes that uh you know rauschenbusch has been challenged with this is that he would say that the the social um drives the individual right and so and I think on the other side of the system is like, no, there's a, a original sin inherent in individual right. people. And so no matter what the social setting is, there's always going to be individual sin. And so in that sense, I um, would want to uh, value what Rauschenbusch affirms without denying the things he would deny, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so, um, you know, and I think that's where McKnight is a little bit about, you know, leaning Anabaptist my and myself is that I do really value the idea that true transformation happens in the church within the, the spiritual community, if for no other reason, the overt allegiance to Jesus as the king. And so the kingdom mm-hmm. itself cannot be fully instantiated without allegiance to the King. Now I do think Christ as you know, God made the world in and through Christ. Um, and so in that sense to the, any time that justice or any time the world works according to peace and harmony is an echo or a, an outworking of Christ's presence just within creation as a whole. And so I, I don't think these have to be like the, the social model 
has to be in opposition to the more kind of Anabaptist model that's focused in a local community of believers over against the wider community of the world. Um, it's not in the opposition that way, but at the same time, it may be, maybe uh, as we think about truth, can't uh, as a thought experiment, can't is there truth outside the Bible? I think we would all say yes, right? Now, not everything outside the Bible is true. Uh, and so, but it's not that, um, and so what I would say is like, there's more truth per square inch in the Bible. And so that's why I would say the Bible is infallible and in what it speaks. And so I can trust it. It's, you know, it, it, um, it has authority in that way. Um, but that doesn't mean that I reject truth outside the Bible. And so in the sense that when we see grace played out in society, there's more grace per square inch, we might say, in the church. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we have to deny that there's grace outside the church as well, too. You know, and that, um, yeah, I think that's important. As Protestants, we don't think about grace in this way, but there are levels of grace, right? It's by God's mm -hmm. grace that anyone who wakes up today and breathes a breath of air, that is an act of grace. That's a level of grace. That's an experience of grace. It's not saving grace, right? But it is an experience of grace. And so we don't think about grace in that way as a Protestant. Catholics think about grace in that way. There are levels of grace and therefore means of grace, but we don't necessarily think about it in that way. But I do think that, um, it's helpful to think about grace in that way, that grace is an experience at different levels. So with this idea of means or levels of, of grace, I think it's helpful to think about the kingdom of God experienced in levels. So, you know, I've read just about everything that Tom Wright puts out. Um, I'm definitely given over to his perspective on a lot of things, not everything, but a lot. And so lots of times when I want to quote him, I can't remember exactly where it is, but he, he has written before that um, Shakespeare did kingdom work, that Beethoven did kingdom work that the people who built the Roman roads through which Paul traveled did kingdom work. Not in that they inherently knew that they were doing kingdom work, but that in them living out the gifts and acts that God and talents that God had given them, they did kingdom work. There's, there's kingdom work being done when Shakespeare writes literature for people to enjoy. There's kingdom work being done when Beethoven plays music and, and uh, writes music that is emotional and invoking and for enjoyment, that there is kingdom work being done outside of those who inherently know that they're doing kingdom work. And I think that's the value of Rauschenbusch and more specifically uh, Moltmann that, that the kingdom is this place in which God interacts with the world. And, and in the way that that happens, there are different experiences of grace. And so it's okay 
to take a Rauschenbuschen approach where grace is experienced through restoration of society as a whole. It's okay to take a Scott McKnight approach where restoration happens through the work of the local church as a whole because of Moltmann, that grace and the kingdom are intertwined with the Trinity in the act of God himself. Yeah, and I think that's the where you where we don't play off God's act in creation from his act of new creation, right? In that sense that it is a grace to live um, in a setting to where you have freedom or the ability to uh, experience, uh, you know, the creativity and the abundance of the earth. Um, I do get a little bit cautious because oftentimes. Uh, the nuance, which I think that you're holding to maybe gets lost among average people. Um, for instance, the, the, like the U S constitution becomes a special work of God to provide get grace to people almost in that uh, sense. Yeah. And so it becomes very nationalized in the way that we experience that creational reality. And, you know, an interesting thing about the Constitution, it, um, it never mentions God. Uh, and so I have a hard time seeing it as a special work of religious, uh, God, you know, um, yeah. ideals there, such that America then is the place where the kingdom of God is somehow specially held. Now, of course, I do think, I mean, that God has thoroughly blessed and given um a lot to the country and been able to bless others. I mean, I think some of that's just because the natural uh, and diversity of the natural resources here have helped build um, an economic system around that, that is not necessarily based on the system itself. Right. It's like if you, if you play settlers of Catan and you're sitting on an eight and somebody else is sitting on a four, uh, you're just going to roll the eights more often, you know, and right. so the natural resources we have here um, give us a, a leg up that is not based up upon our ingenuity per se, but it's just the starting point. But at the same time, they're uh, great. You know, people have done a lot to use those resources, but at the same time, I wouldn't call that necessarily the kingdom in its fullest expression yeah. any more than I would any other country that has used the resources that are provided to it. Well, I think that that's a, that's a good point. And I guess for, uh, our listeners who are used to me talking and kind of my, my thoughts is I would, I would not say that those things are an embodiment of grace. They're an experience of grace. They don't inherently embody the fullness of the kingdom they don't have that central Jesus focus, but that doesn't mean that they're not an experience of grace in that the things that they then provide look similar to the kingdom of God. Yeah. And I think, so if you, you know, in this sense, I think this is we're on the same page. If somebody is living in poverty and um, struggling to feed their children um, you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, or you have no access to health care. Um, you know, it's the grace of God to live in a place where you don't experience that poverty, right? right. There's not need. There's grace in the fact of the system. And I, I like that. I may not use the, the same 
sense of what you say embody versus embody versus experience experience i do like the that in the sense of like and i see experience as embodied so i might say something like as a means of grace versus the experience of grace okay um might be a different way but in that sense of like grace can happen to you passively or actively in that sense. Right. Right. And so the church is an active source of grace in the sense that it's God's holiness and, and re- life giving reality is radiating out from it. But in the sense of the more passive or the experience of grace, if you said there, I think uh, I, I do like, I mean, I think that makes sense of like, um, and it does, you know, the reasons people come to these, uh, highlighting one or the other, I think comes down to where they see sin and brokenness residing. And, and in that sense, like we have the active and the passive as- aspects of grace on the individual level and the social level. Right. And so we need that active grace on that communal reality uh, because it's something that radiates out and multiplies grace um, you know, one of the things I think is interesting in that when we talk about issues like this are uh, scarce resources. So economics is a, a side hobby of mine. Um, a side hobby. It, it, it paved the way for you to be who you are today. Yeah, I guess so. Well, so doing accounting and yeah, economics are yeah. a little bit different uh, <laughs> modes. But yeah, I have a former life as a CPA. and uh, But I do think about, you know, economics is at its base level, the allocation of scarce resources. Yeah. Right. And so, but in a a divine economy, grace and love and knowledge are not scarce resources. Oh yeah. They cannot be limited in that sense that grace actually can be spread, uh, divided or, or shared among equally among people in the same way that love or say knowledge, right? It's not like you have, you know, 10 apples. And once you hand out those 10 apples, right there, you're gone. You can have a, an, an idea, a piece of knowledge and you can share it among 10 people and it has no limitation, right? It can st- still be shared infinitely more. <clears throat> and I think it's the economics of non-scarcity that drive kind of a, a Christian value in this of the, there is. So even if you have to sacrifice your life, the whole idea of it, you're willing to sacrifice it because it's not a scarce resource in the sense, like there's an eternal reality that is not limited temporally. Um, and so it's that willingness to sacrifice and, you know, spread that splash, that grace around everywhere else through that sacrifice that if you don't have that, if you're always working off of a scarce model, you're, it's only about accumulation of either communal goods or individual goods. And you're not willing to sacrifice that. Yeah. You know, that's a really good, that's a really good point because, um, Hmm. Yeah, I want, I'm trying to think about where I want to take this, but that's a really interesting point because in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, grace and gift are the same word because grace is a gift and it's an experience of gift, which I think your doctoral father, John Barclay, has done the most comprehensive work on this idea in his book, Paul and the Gift. Yeah, that's right. Actually, he has and has a... a a pared down version coming out 
as we speak, I think, uh, it just came out. I can't remember what it's called now. It's not my head. It just got released, but, um, I'll, I'll go find it and put it in the show notes for you. Yeah. So the Paul and the gift, uh, is a great book. It's been cited as one of the most influential new Testament books in the last 25 years by multiple scholars, but it does suffer from one large sin is that it's a six or 700 page book. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately it is. And, and so, I have that six or 700 page book. Yeah. So, so I, the, you know. the short version that's coming out, uh, as the, the summary of it, uh, will be good. Yeah. So there are different languages for gift and, uh, grace. Uh, I mean, they overlap in that sense. Um, Dorea is a, a gift and Karis is grace, but it, it's not that they are in opposite terms. And one of the, the important things about gift in the ancient world is that a gift uh, implied the responsibility to respond to the gift. Yeah. And in, in that sense of that, it's re- reciprocal. And so when God gives us grace, you know, there's this idea that we live with in the modern setting that if you give a gift, it has to be no strings attached. The perfect gift is one that you give and have no expectation of return. But in the ancient world, when, when um, early Christians and early Jews talked about grace, what they talked about is God has given this gift and there's an expected re- reciprocation in the sense of re- obedience. Right. And that it was the, the right gift is one that actually builds and creates a community. And so when God gives us grace, and we return that grace and thanksgiving. So, in fact, the word Eucharist, right? So, charis is the grace. Right. Eucharist is the thanksgiving for that grace and response and love and obedience to God's grace. That it cements the community, right? Right. And so, that it is uh, actually a response is necessitated by the right. gift rather than one that's without strings attached. And so, I think he's very helpful in that sense of, um, it can't be a Congress in the sense that we can't return anywhere, anything equal to what the gift was given, right. but that doesn't mean that there is no reciprocation either. Well, and this is where, you know, Rauschenbusch takes this and says, Hey, the, the kingdom of God, this should be a, a, a gift that's realized for all people and society now becomes the means through which that's experienced, right? We can, we can make universal health care. We can make an end of poverty, and that happens. Whereas I think Moltmann helps bring this kind of back. And, and Moltmann, for any of you who are listening and, and unaware, is a, a German theologian of the 20th century. Uh, I think he's still alive. Yep. Yeah, I think, at least still tweets. It may be his spirit. Uh, yeah, he he still tweets. Yeah, yeah. he's been retired from uh, his university position for quite a while, but he he has this idea that God um, goes about a way of voluntarily limiting himself in order con- to connect with us, and that is the realization of the kingdom of God. So this idea that God is still the transcendent ultimate being, but limits himself to be in experience with us, which is this overlap that we call the kingdom of God. 
Yeah, and I would think that some that emphasize cruciformity. So Michael Gorman, I think, mm-hmm. is a great example of this. Um, um, drawing a blank, he has so many books, but he has one on that has theosis in the title. Well, he's got multiple ones now. Has theosis in, in, in the title? Inhabiting the Cruciform Gods are oh, okay. the book I was thinking of. He plays this out, but he looks at Philippians too, and he says, "How do we, you know, this whole idea that Jesus sacrifices himself, not in contrast to his d- divine identity, but because of his uh, yeah. divine identity?" And I think it it plays up some of these things that Moltmann is bringing out. Um, I'm I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist in my Trinitarian theology, in that sense. Um, not in opposition to Mike Gorman per se, but some of the things that Moltmann does, but more in that transcendent kind of ultimate creator. Yeah. I think in that sense, but at the same time, I I wouldn't want to minimize the focus of what God does in kind of his engagement with the world. And that, you know, I would say that is, um, you know, Moltmann would say because of who God reveals himself to be in this, reaching out, engaging the other, it drives the way that we should see how human society works and uh, on a, at a basic level, but even more so the way the church, mm. you know, is rightly yeah. oriented around that sense of self-sacrifice and engaging the other. And um, I, th- I think that is an important aspect of, you know, why I come back to, you know, what, is going on in um, the cruciform message of if this is the way the king is, then the kingdom, the people of the king should uh, have the responsibility to live that way too. Yeah. And so the, you know, that's an interesting piece that if the king lives this way, then it's the responsibility of the people to live that way as well, which is what the early church, the first believers thought that their, action in the world, their expression of the reality of the kingdom of God manifests itself in Acts chapter two in the common purse, that they are selling all their possessions, giving it, having all things in common and giving it to any who has need. It is this true idealized realization of the first will be last and the last will be first. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll always highlight there too. The it also says they were had the signs and wonders among the community, and so it's yeah. both a um, a multi layered experience of the reality of yeah. of that. And but and I think this is the message of of McKnight, uh, Scott McKnight, that I wouldn't want to bypass is that that um the church is the means of grace is the place where that multiplies. Um, I think is the generative reality of the church mm. without separating that from, uh, the call of the church to be a voice and a witness to truth and justice in the world that we live in. And so yeah. in that sense, it's not that we don't, um, yeah, I was listening to some, uh, podcast and videos the other day of Mennonite Anabaptists. Yeah. And historically they are non-voting, right? The yeah. whole idea of the church is it's so separate totally from the world separate. Yep. that to be 
engaged in those, that level of politics is a category mistake of the church. Right. And so to be truly Anabaptist is to have that more kind of separatist vision. And I, I don't think McKnight has that full kind of Mennonite Anabaptist vision. Um, but there is something pure purifying about that as to where are your ultimate, you know, loyalties and, yeah. and, but even not just loyalties, but where, where do you expect God to do his work in the world, you know, more yeah. fully, most fully. And we protect people. I mean, I think that's the whole thing of society is the goal is to protect the abuses that happen when there's a, an imbalance of power. So whether that's in economic or social or wherever, uh, yeah, I think we should speak out against, uh, balances of power so for those that can't speak for themselves whether that's the unborn or the poor you know i mean both are voiceless in politics you know and so you the church can be the voice for them but the true generative center of what's the solution to those the problems that generated that i think it's the kingdom of god expressed through the obedience to christ through the power of the holy spirit yeah. So I think the if if I were going to sum up what we think is here and what does it mean for a realization of the kingdom of God in a contemporary postmodern modern world it is that you as a person of faith have the spirit of God in you which means the kingdom of God has been realized and in any and all things that you touch you should be pursuing restoration and healing, which is an embodiment of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I like that. So wherever the life of life is at, instead of death, God is the source of that, right? And mm-hmm. the people of God are in the midst of that. And and again, it, it, God's spirit is working in Christ in creation in ways that we we don't have to be active to make God's kingdom, right? God, mm-hmm. It's God's yeah. kingdom, not ours. Right. And so we're just agents that help support that. But, you know, God is active in ways that we, uh, mm. we're not even involved in. Yeah, that's such a good word. Well, thanks, Ben. I'm looking forward to one more episode with you. Uh, that's a really good word uh, about what this realization is. But join us next week again for... Uh, been here to walk us through the final culmination the the eternal realization of the kingdom of god all right thanks